Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Please take out your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, we'll be reading verses 25 through 29. And before we read the word, let us pray for God's blessing upon His word. What a privilege it is, Lord God, to come before you and to worship you. Not only have you given us the grace, Lord God, to be able to stand in your presence at any time and come and speak our hearts and minds to you through prayer, you have given us the privilege of fellowship, Lord, that we as like-minded Christians can support one another and love each other. But you also have given us your word that we may know you, Lord. And so as we approach your word today, Lord, that our hearts would be ready, that our hearts would be humble, that our hearts would be, would be circumcised, Lord, they would be changed, that our hearts, Lord God, would be fertile ground for your word to fall in, and that it would take root in us and grow up into in us and bear fruit in our lives. Father, we pray that you'd have your way in all that we say and do. So, Father, we pray that your word would be a blessing to all those who hear it, Lord. It would be exactly what they need to hear today. And that remind them, Lord, of your faithfulness, Lord. That you, Lord, in spite of us, are faithful to fulfill your promises. And that your relationship with us is simply by the basis of your own love for us who didn't love you. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. I pray, Lord, your blessing over each and everyone who is here today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 25. And the word of the sovereign Lord reads this way. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and the circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is one merely outwardly, nor circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This is the word of the Lord. The 18th century American preacher and theologian Jonathan Edwards once said, The first in the great work of a Christian is about his heart. Do not be content with seeming to do good in outward acts while your heart is bad and you are a stranger to the greater internal heart duties. So now we are today in the 14th part 
of our sermon series on the book of Romans titled The Power of the Gospel. Fourteen parts in two chapters. That is just over 14 hours of content for your listening pleasure. But the why? Why the book of Romans? Why expository preaching? And and why deliberately take our time and walk through each one of these sections of text? I mean, why would we want to spend so much time walking through the details of a 2,000-year-old letter? Especially this part of the text, beginning in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, going all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, where Paul is talking about the bad news part of the gospel. Why look at the details and the nuances of this so closely? Why not just move on to the good news and just skip to the good parts? Well, the answer is actually quite simple. The most important truth you will ever learn, the most important truth that you will ever hear, the most important truth in your life, both this one and in the next life, is the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the most important truth that any person will ever hear, possess, learn, understand, believe. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is not a more important truth in the world, in the universe. This is a truth that's more important than you understanding yourself. It is more important than the truth about who your family is. It is more important than the truth of your your citizenship status. This truth is more important than the truth about the color of your skin. This truth is more important than the truth about gravity and the laws of physics. This truth is more important for you to understand than all of the truths about finance. This truth is more important for you to understand about all the truths about relationships and marriage and having a happy marriage. The most important truth that you can learn and understand and memorize and commit to your heart and believe is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I cannot say that emphatically enough. Because the one truth that so many people seemed to need, the, one pe- the truth that people need to understand but seem not to understand when it comes to Christianity is the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you don't believe me, then ask people around you. When you survey Christians in the world around you, what you're going to find is that a lot of people don't understand the gospel. Just ask the question, what must you do to be saved? You will see very quickly there's a lot of confusion about the gospel. I've heard people say with their own mouth, to be saved means you need to get right with God. To be saved, you need to pray and read your Bible. I've heard people say that, people that I know. People say, well, you just need to ask Jesus into your heart. People also say, you just need to go to church to be saved. Other people believe sincerely that you need to do things like penance. You need to earn and make payment for your sins that you committed in your life. These are people who claim to be Christians. None of these things are true, by the way. Even more disconcerting, would you ask somebody to explain to you what the gospel is? When you ask them, what is the gospel? Please explain to me what the gospel is. You'll find that a lot of people who will struggle to give you an answer that is biblical. I can't tell you how many people who've told me, well, well, the gospel is loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. No, that's the law. 
That's the law. Jesus said that's the summary of the law, and you can't do it this way. You need the gospel. It's not the gospel. I've I've even heard somebody say that, you know what? Some people, you know, get on social media and want to sound really spiritual. They say, you know what? I believe that if we lived out the gospel, there would be fewer megachurches and there'd be fewer uh, people who are hungry in the world. The problem with that statement is, number one, the gospel is not something you live out. The gospel is not an activity. The gospel is news. It's something you proclaim. It's something you declare. It's not something you do. Secondly, the reason why people are not, there are hungry people in this world has nothing to do with a lack of Christian generosity. It has to do with geopolitical conflicts and governments corruptly withholding food from their own people and all kinds of other reasons. Now, as far as megachurches go, that happens is because there are a lot of people who don't even know the gospel. I'm not saying that all megachurches are bad, but I'm saying there's a number of them that might be. The gospel is not something you live out, but the problem is many people don't understand what the gospel actually is, which is tragic. It's tragic because it's the most important truth you can learn, and the reason for that is because the most important issue facing all of humanity, individually and corporately, is not politics. The most important issue facing humanity is not even hunger. The most important issue facing the world is not oppression. It's not even hatred of any kind. The most important issue facing every single human being who has ever lived and ever will live is is simply this. We will all one day, all of us one day, will stand and face the one true God, the creator and the sustainer of all things. That is a universal truth that applies to every single human being that's ever existed and will exist. And when we face him, we will then give an account for our lives. And this holy, righteous, and judge, I mean, just God will judge us according to our deeds held up to his perfect standard. And the only question that will be relevant for you then and what will be relevant for anyone else is are you righteous in the sight of God? That's the only thing that will ever matter. In the end, the only thing that will matter is are you righteous before God? Because if you are not righteous before God, then you will be hopeless and your entire life and existence will have been a monumental waste of time and energy. Now, I want you to hear me because I'm not being fatalistic when I make a statement like that because I'm not saying that people who are not right with God cannot have happiness in this life. I'm not saying that, that, right? I'm not saying that they can't be productive or they can't live lives that have purpose and meaning in the short term. Because the truth is a lot of people who are not Christians live lives where they do experience happiness, and some of them experience a lot of it. A lot of them experience, almost all of them experience the gift of affection, right? God's grace that he's given us in that. Almost all of them experience the gift of love and friendship, right? All those people are capable in this life of making wonderful memories, They will experience many good things in this life, and they and many people around them will find their life to be meaningful and important in this life. And some people will even be loved and remembered and valued long after they're gone and their time on the earth is done. So a person can live a meaningful and purposeful life 
and have happiness in this life in the short term. But what then? Because that person, like all other people, will stand before God and God will judge them according to his standard of perfect righteousness in thought, word, and deed. And if they don't measure up to that, if they are found not to be righteous in the sight of God, they will rightly receive the judgment that they have coming, that they will be condemned and sentenced for their unrighteousness. And they will not spend 80 or 100 years paying for their sins here and now. They will spend an entire eternity paying for their unrighteousness, regardless of how awesome their life was, regardless of how many homeless people they fed, regardless of how much benevolent things they've done, regardless of how rich they were, how famous they were, how loved they were, how powerful they were. If they are not righteous before God, they will still stand condemned. That, that is why they are ultimately hopeless and their lives will be meaningless. That is why also the gospel is so important because there is no other truth human beings need more than the gospel because no human being will be found righteous in the sight of God on our own. No one, not one of us, none of us measures up, not any of us because we've all failed to meet God's standard perfect, righteous standard. That is why we need to know. That is why we need to understand. That is why we need to believe the gospel because the gospel is literally our only hope. Feed somebody today, they'll be hungry tomorrow. Save someone's life medically, they will die at some point. The gospel of Christ is our only true hope. The gospel tells us that God came into the world to do for us the things that we couldn't do for ourselves. Jesus came and lived the perfect righteous life we couldn't live and died to make atonement for our sins. And by faith in that gospel, our sins are washed clean by the blood of Christ's atonement. And we are given as a gift Christ's perfect righteousness so we can be right, we can be perfect in the sight of God. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel that we hold on to. And that's the most important truth that you will ever know. And that's the reason we come back to this over and over and over again. I can stand up here and give you lots of great platitudes about how to have a better life. I can tell you how the Bible talks about how to have a better marriage. But what you need to know more than anything else is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the reason why we, we stay, have been staying here because so many people still don't understand the gospel. That's why we're in the book of Romans, and that's why, by the way, Paul wrote the book of Romans. That's exactly why he wrote it. Paul wrote the book of Romans to the, as a letter to the church in Rome, a church that was started on the day of Pentecost. A group of Jews made a pilgrimage to, to Jerusalem. Jews who lived in Rome made the pilgrimage at Pentecost, and they heard Peter's sermon and they repented and believed and they went back to Rome and started a church and they didn't have an apostle who who started the church they didn't have an apostle over them teaching them doctrine and theology and so Paul wrote this letter to clearly explicitly explain the gospel he wanted to make sure that they completely totally understood what the gospel is because Paul knows what's at stake 
And so he sets about in this letter of the Romans to explain the gospel in a way that no one else has. And in this gospel, he explains what the gospel is. He explains what what the hope of the gospel gives, and he explains how we are to live as Christians in light of the gospel. And Paul begins the gospel by saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for those who believe. And he begins the gospel with not the good news about what Jesus did for us, but the bad news of the condition of our own hearts, the human condition. Why? Why start there? Because it's important for him to establish the fact that we all need the same gospel. Every human being needs the exact same gospel. There's not a gospel for you and a different gospel for me. There's not a gospel for black people that's different than white people. We all need the same gospel. No matter who we are, we are all standing in the same place. We are all in need of a Savior. And until we come to the place where we understand what we are in light of who God is and see our desperate need we will never understand our need for the gospel. So Paul begins his gospel by destroying whatever sense of self-righteousness that we could bring to the table. He destroys our excuses in Romans chapter 1 and begins to unpack what the unbelieving world thinks. He says there is no such thing as a person who doesn't know God. He says they just simply deny the truth and unrighteousness and they deny God what He deserves, glory, thanksgiving, honor, and our worship. But instead, what they want to do is they want to trade God for the idols and vain things that are powerless and worthless so they can worship those things so that they can actually have the sin that they love so much. And what does God do to these people? In His wrath, He gives them over to their desires. He gives them over to their sins. And the fruit of that is a licentious lifestyle and rampant sexual immorality and perversity in all manner of sin. At this, that's the sign that God's judgment is upon these people. And so mankind generically is without excuse. But then in Romans chapter 2, Paul addresses a group of people who fancy themselves as being right with God. And they would say, Paul, you're exactly right. Those Gentiles don't deserve life. They deserve to be condemned. They are horrible, deplorable, nasty, ugly people. By the way, we use that same kind of language all the time. We don't love, they don't love God like us, like us special people. But Paul in Romans chapter 2 begins to dismantle their self-righteousness. He tells them they too are without an excuse and they are justly guilty before God, just the same as the Gentiles. And the reason why, right, it's important that we understand this and what Paul is doing here is number one, So we understand how Paul is taking and leveling the playing field so that all mankind understands he stands in the same place. There's a tendency in all of us that want to elevate ourselves above somebody else. We want to look at someone else and say that I'm better than you. I'm better than you. Paul is leveling the playing field so we all see, we all stand on the same level ground before God. And number two, there are some shadows in their attitudes and their self-righteousness that can be reflected in our own attitudes if we're not careful, because we have a lot of the same tendencies. If there's a tendency in humanity, it is the tendency towards legalism. It just seems to be naturally pulling on us. 
It's a tendency towards self-righteousness. It's a tendency toward us doing something tangible on our own in order to earn favor with God to prove that we are right with Him. There's a tend- tendency toward external things that we think prove that we are right with God. And Paul in this chapter begins to unpack these kinds of things. And what we see, what we've seen to this point is Paul tells the Jews that you are on the same footing as the Gentiles and you Jews who say that you know and love the law, you do the exact same thing the Gentiles do. But yet you sit in judgment of them for that. You condemn them, right? Not realizing you're condemning yourself in return. Not understanding the law is for everyone and everyone is going to be judged by the exact same standard across the board because God is fair. And then Paul in this text begins to address a very important part of Jewish life that they felt made them extremely special. It's the external physical sign or symbol that was given to them under the law. A sign that they thought made them separate and different from the world around them. A sign that they thought made them right with God and it's the ritual of circumcision. The Jews saw this as a sign and as a proof that they belong to God. They saw it as indisputable proof that they are in the kingdom. As Everett Harrison points out in his commentary on Romans, if the law was the major distinctive of the Jews, a close second was circumcision. The Jews' identity was so closely tied to circumcision that they would often be called the circumcised, right? Or they would be called a circumcision party because every Jewish man had been given the sign in their flesh. And culturally, they believed that it made them who they were. Not only spiritually different, but also physically different from the world as well. Well, Paul in Romans chapter 2 says this. He says, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. What we see is Paul continuing his diatribe with his imaginary Jewish person, and he affirms the value of the symbol in the life of the Jew. In fact, the Greek word that he uses here for value can actually mean beneficial or helpful or even profitable, not to mention that Paul, when he uses this word, he does so as a verb, and, and the tense is, is present tense, indicative active, meaning when he says this, it's a, an idea of continuing action. In other words, circumcision is beneficial now and continues to be beneficial for the Jews who possess it. It's valuable now and continues to be valuable, but valuable in what way? Well, the first thing we need to understand is what circumcision was. Circumcision, for those of you who might understand, is a surgical procedure to remove a piece of skin off of male anatomy, and that's as far as I think we can go with that. I don't mean to talk about things like that here on Sunday morning, but that's what it is. No, no way to get around that. But, it's a, but, but its value was the fact that it literally set the, Jews, the Jewish men apart from the rest of the Gentile world, which, by the way, was Greek in culture, who despised such practices. Circumcision set the Jews apart physically as different in the world. Secondly, circumcision was a physical sign of their covenant relationship with God as prescribed in the Old Testament. And so this physical mark was a symbol of a greater reality. And that 
is that they were in covenant relationship with the, the creator of the universe. By the way, this is much like our right for right of water baptism. There's, there's, there's parallels. You see, Christians are baptized as a symbol of them being part, being separated from this world. It's a symbol of being set apart from this world because baptism is a reenactment of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It's a symbol of a believer's union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And it's a symbol of the believer's entrance into the new covenant community, which is the church. And so circumcision as a symbol was an ongoing, of, ongoing value for the Jew, the way baptism is of ongoing value for the Christian. But notice what Paul says, for circumcision indeed is of value if, if you obey the law. This right here is a critical point that Paul's argument, he's making against the self-righteousness of these people. Because the Jews believe that being circumcised is the guarantee that they were right with God. They believed that being circumcised meant that they were without question members of the covenant community. In fact, there were many rabbinic sayings that affirmed that view. John Stott, the late pastor, in his commentary on Romans, he points out that the Jews, the Jews had almost an, a almost superstitious confidence in the saving power of their circumcision. He says, rabbinic epigrams or pithy little statements express this attitude. For example, one epigram states, circumcised men do not descend into Gehenna. That's just a statement they made. They believed it, right? Another one, another famous little saying was, circumcision will deliver Israel from Gehenna. Gehenna is hell, by the way. They believed that. They believed that, that circumcision was the instrument that God was using to save them. That it was that it was the thing that ensured that they were part of the covenant community. So not only did they believe that being Jewish and possessing the law guaranteed their entrance in the kingdom, they believed that this sign of, of circumcision was empirical proof that they belonged to God and were safe, regardless of how they lived, that they were members of God's kingdom. Much like some people today claim who claim to be Christians, who believe that baptism is the instrument of regeneration. We've, we've met those people. We know, right? We've heard that. That baptism is what washes people clean of their sins or that, or that it makes them right with God. That baptism is the instrument of our salvation and the guarantee of our salvation. Many people claim to follow Christ insist that only baptized people will be saved, much like the Jews held the idea that only the circumcised would share in God's kingdom in the future world. The Jews had a superstitious confidence in this physical sign. And if there is something that human beings are prone to is superstition. Just ask any baseball player. But again, Paul says, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. You see, Paul reminds the Jews that they cannot separate the sign of circumcision from obedience to the law. As Stott puts it, circumcision is the sign of covenant membership, and covenant membership requires obedience to the law. In other words, circumcision is a sign you belong to the covenant community only if you're truly part of the covenant community, and those who are part of the covenant community obey the law. And then he goes on to say, but if you break 
the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. In other words, your, this physical sign becomes meaningless by your disobedience. And again, let's compare that to baptism. Your baptism as a Christian is a valuable sign. It's a valuable sign that you are in Christ and part of the New Covenant you know, Community Church if you indeed have saving faith. But if you don't have saving faith, then you are not in Christ. Didn't matter how many times you walked the aisle and how many professions of faith you've made. If you're not, if you don't have saving faith, then you're not part of the New Covenant community and your baptism is simply a time in your life that you just got wet. It's just pointless and meaningless. You see, what Paul is trying to help the Jews to see is the sign of circumcision is a symbol of a greater reality. It's a symbol of a greater substance. Circumcision was a sign that the Jews were set apart and they were set apart by their reverence for God and His commandments in the law. They were set apart by their devotion to God and His law. They were set apart by the commitment to keep God at the center of their lives. Circumcision was a symbol of a greater reality, but the Jews, like all other people, became extremely self-centered. And they were oblivious to their flagrant disobedience to the law, and they didn't see a problem with their clearly hypocritical behavior. All of this betrayed the fact that they didn't truly reverence and honor God and His Word. And Paul's point is when the symbol of the reality becomes disconnected from the substance of that reality, the symbol becomes an empty, meaningless sign. It even becomes pointless and even worthless. And I think we can all understand this. I mean, my ring is a symbol of my marriage to my wife, Kim. It's a valuable symbol because it sets me apart in this world. It lets everyone around me know that I am taken, that I am committed to my wife. When you see the ring on my finger, you know I am married. But the symbol itself doesn't make me married. It's a symbol of the reality. And if I took the ring off, it doesn't make me unmarried. It doesn't nullify my marriage. It's a it, the symbol doesn't change reality. All the symbol can do is represent reality, and, the, and it only represents reality as long as that reality is true. What I mean by this is, is if I were an unmarried man and I was wearing a ring, I would be wearing an empty symbol. It doesn't mean anything because it doesn't connect with reality or Worse, if I were unfaithful to my wife and the covenant promises I made to her, my, my ring would become a bankrupt symbol because of the reality this ring connected to would be itself corrupt. Symbols only have meaning if they're connected to a reality. A wedding ring has meaning if it's connected to a marriage. Baptism is meaningful if there is legitimate faith. And Paul is saying that circumcision is only valuable if you obey the law. Paul is saying that, that for the Jews, that if they fail to be obedient to the law, the substance, their circumcision, the symbol, is without meaning, which means they are, again, no better off than the Gentiles that he's been describing in chapter 1. 
which again was Paul's point, which by the way, the Jews would have found extremely offensive. They saw themselves as superior to the Gentiles in every possible way. But to make things worse, Paul actually then adds on to that. Not only does he say you're on equal footing with the Gentiles, but he says, so if a man is um, who is uncircumcised, who is not Jewish, keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? In other words, if a person who did not receive circumcision but keeps the precepts of the law of the covenant community, isn't his obedience not only the substance but also the symbol as well? In other words, if a man who doesn't have a wedding ring but gets married and fulfills his covenant vows to his wife right, in his marriage and is faithful, not only right, is his faithfulness the substance of his marriage, but isn't it also then the symbol of the substance? Or how about this? If a person who is not baptized but is born again and has faith in Christ, isn't their life of following Christ just as much as a symbol as their baptism is? You see, Paul is not saying that symbols are not important. That's not what he's saying here. What he's saying is the reality the symbol represents is more important than the symbol itself. Because a symbol disconnected from its corresponding reality is meaningless. That's why having a badge doesn't make you a police officer. Right? And having a jersey doesn't make you part of the, part of the team. Right? Because lots of people have been wearing jerseys the last couple of weeks, and they're not part of the team. Some of them Packer fans are wanting to throw their jerseys away, but that's okay. Having a ring doesn't make you married. Having expensive clothes doesn't make you rich. Being circumcised doesn't mean that you're part of the covenant community. Being baptized doesn't make you a Christian. And making an emotional profession of faith isn't what saves you. The substance of reality is far more important than the symbol of reality. And so Paul says being circumcised is meaningless if you don't obey the law. And worse, those who are uncircumcised will be regarded as better off than you if they keep the law, though they don't have the symbol of circumcision. That's just adding insult to injury, right? He says those, then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and the circumcision but break the law. This right here was something that would hit a Jewish person right where they live. It's bad enough to think that they're on equal footing with those dirty little Gentiles. But Paul, what he is in essence saying is that they actually could be better off than you Jews who took pride in their heritage and were themselves physically marked with a covenant. The Gentiles would have been regarded as a true covenant member and the Jew would have been regarded as, as a false one. And this is a stinging rebuke, a stinging rebuke. But again, Paul is driving home his point. The symbol of the covenant without the substance of the covenant is an empty symbol. Having your foreskin cut off doesn't make you one of God's people. Being baptized doesn't make you born again. Having a wedding ring doesn't make you married. What matters is not external symbols. What matters is the internal reality that the symbols represent. In fact, look what Paul says next in verse 28. He says, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor a circumcision outward and physical. 
but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is, is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Understand, Paul, being a Jew, knew that this was a hard thing for those who were Jewish by heritage to hear. He knew that this would be offensive to them. And by the way, just so you know, the gospel has always been offensive to someone. So let us not be shy and be ashamed of the gospel because we hurt somebody's feelings with the gospel. Paul knew this would be an offensive, right? But Paul is saying your ethnicity and more specifically being given this physical sign of the covenant doesn't make you one of God's people. And this is the point that they needed to see. This was the place they needed to get to. The Jews thought themselves to be God's people simply because they were Jews. And circumcision was simply for them a physical mark or proof of that reality. But Paul makes clear that even more explicitly in the book of Galatians, ethnicity and religious rituals and cultural and heritage and genetics and even physical signs do not make a person one of God's people. Being a Jew in nationality does not make a person one of God's family. Being a Jew in culture does not make one part of God's chosen people. And that is the truth. And even Christians today still struggle with that understanding. There's a tendency to want to divide the promises of God into two groups. They want to say that there are two different programs that God was operating, that the Jews were supposed to be saved by the law and that Christians were saved by grace. It's the same program. There, you see, there are still Christians who say that Jews today are God's chosen people, those very people who spit in the face of God and step on and spit in the face of His Messiah and blaspheme His name. The truth that we need to understand that God's chosen people have always been and will continue to be the elect in all ages. Being Jewish in heritage and having circumcision performed on them doesn't make them part of God's people. It never has. And that's the point that Paul is driving at here. In fact, the mark that sets people apart and different isn't even an outward physical one. It's an internal one. Paul says this. He says, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. Paul is saying that being one of God's people isn't a matter of having your physical body changed. It's a matter of having your heart changed. And what he means by circumcision of the heart, he's not, he's not talking about heart surgery itself. He's talking about a supernatural change of the heart. He's not, he's not talking about physically having the muscle in your chest opened up and pulled out and then and then having something excised from it. What he's talking about is the parts of who you really are, the center of your identity, the center of who you are that, that determines your will and your decision-making and your emotions and the direction of your life, the part that's the core of who you are inside. Paul is saying those who belong to God, those who are his people, are the ones who have their hearts changed. The unclean part of their heart is cut away. And what you have to understand is that this idea that Paul is bringing to these Jews, something they should have already known. It's not a new idea, by the way. Because this truth of having a circumcised heart is found throughout the Old Testament. 
In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moses, the one through whom the law itself came, said, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and your heart will in the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. That's Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. Moses, the one who wrote down the law, he himself connected loving God, right? Not with a physical sign that's outward, but a supernatural change in heart. And what that means is, is, is one of God's people being one of God's people isn't a matter of an outward ritual. It's an inward change. The prophet Jeremiah also emphasized this. In Jeremiah 4.4, he says, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. O men of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, let my wrath, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with, uh, with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Jeremiah is talking to men of Judah, which, by the way, is the origin of the name Jew. The name Jew is from the tribe of Judah, which means praising God. Right? And these men, he's telling them, right? these men who were circumcised in their flesh, he says, circumcise or change your hearts. Change your hearts and your attitude towards God, because even though that you have the physical sign even though that you have, have been called by the name of Judah, you are under the wrath of God just like the Gentiles are. And then further in Jeremiah, he says, Behold, the day are coming, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in desert, who cut the corners of their hair, for all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. Just because a person was Jewish, of Jewish descent, doesn't make them one of God's people. Just because a person was circumcised according to the law doesn't make them right with God. You see, the Jews rightly believed that there were two types of people in the world. Those who were in the kingdom of God and those who were not in the kingdom of God. That's the two types of people in the world, by the way. Those who are in the kingdom of God who are saved and those who are not in the kingdom and who are not saved. But the Jews wrongly believed that the ones to be in the kingdom were the ones that were circumcised and everyone else who were not circumcised were outside of the kingdom. But that is not the distinction that God has been making from the very beginning in the Scriptures. The distinction that we saw all through the book of Mark as we went through that gospel the distinction between those in the kingdom and not in the kingdom is a matter of their heart. Those who were in the kingdom had their hearts supernaturally changed, and those who were not in the kingdom had hardened hearts of stone. They had hardened hearts, and that is the point that Paul is making here. Paul is saying that being set apart for God and being part of his family. It's not a matter of heritage or physical marks on the body. It's a matter of a changed heart. You being right with God has never been about external conformity. It's never been about religion or rituals or symbols or performance. It's about an internal change, internal conformity. A Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart. Notice he says, by the Spirit not by the letter. 
This change is brought about by not the law itself. It's brought about by the Spirit of God. And again, a changed heart is something that is supernatural, something done by God. This is the promise we have seen in Ezekiel, by the way. This is the promise that we as Christians look back on and see fulfillment in Christ. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The promise is that we would get a new heart. And the promise is then that with that new heart, we'd have new affections and we would begin then to become obedient. You see, Paul's overarching point here that he's making is that Jews have placed their confidence in the wrong things. They have placed their confidence in external rituals and external details. They have placed their confidence in self-righteousness because of their nationality, because they have been given the law of God, and because they have been given the physical symbol. But the Jews have been and continue to be on the exact same footing as the Gentiles who have none of these symbols. They are hopeless and helpless without the supernaturally changed heart. These people, though they, though they thought they were right with God because of external things, invisible things, were not. This is similar to how people who call themselves Christians think that they're right with God because of outward things. Some people think that they're right with God because they attend church. We, we know this, right? We've experienced people like that. Some people think that they're right with God because, because they're not cussing anymore, at least publicly. Some people think that they're right with God because they got baptized. Some people think that they're right with God because God is prospering them. You talk about a pariah in the American church is this notion of a prosperity gospel. You're rich is, is, sign, is a sign that God that you're right with God. Some think that doing good deeds in the community is proof that they're right with God. There are a lot of churches that are focused on doing those deeds, proving that we are Christians. And many people today falsely think that a sign of being right with God is being engaged in the social justice movement and critical theory. Mankind has historically looked at the outward things and symbols to justify themselves before God. And Paul is saying here that none, none, none of these external things actually make one right with God in reality. That comes from something internal that must be done from the Spirit. It is not what you do outwardly. It is what has been done in you inwardly. You see, the outward is for people. The inward is for God. Paul says of someone who's been changed in the heart, he says, his praise is not from man, but from God. See, the Jews felt justified when they appeared set apart by their actions and their circumcision and their rituals and their pomp and circumstance, forgetting that it's not men that they're trying to please, it is God Himself. As it's been said in the Scriptures, man looks on the outside. God is the one who looks at the heart. So let's talk principles here, now that we've gotten through that part of the text. Obviously, Paul's talking to the Jews and you know, who are relying on their religious tradition and status as Jews to justify themselves and think that they're better off than the Gentiles. And Paul is painstakingly arguing that no one is right before God on their own. That's really the overarching point that Paul's driving home here. So what do we do then with this? Well, 
I think the first principle, I believe, is we need to recognize that the, the value of outward symbols, but at the same time recognize the limits of those symbols. We need to recognize that there is value in those symbols, but also limits, like baptism. There is value in our baptism, lots of value in our baptism. And just as the Jews were commanded to be circumcised, we as Christians are commanded by Christ to be baptized. And our baptism is an act of obedience and a symbol of our union with Christ, and it's a symbol that we belong to the new covenant community of the church. In fact, our our statement of faith that we subscribe to here says this about baptism. It says, Christian baptism is the immersion of the believer in water in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is an act of obedience symbolizing the the believer's faith in a crucified, buried, and risen Savior, the believer's death to sin, burial of the old life, and resurrection to walk in the newness of life in Christ Jesus. It is a testimony of his faith in the final resurrection of the dead. Being a church ordinance, it is a prerequisite to the privileges of church membership and to the Lord's Supper. You must be baptized to be an officially member of a church anywhere. It's a symbol of your membership. Likewise, you must be baptized as a believer to partake in the Lord's Supper because the Lord's Supper is for the body of Christ. And so there is value in the symbol of baptism. But there's also limitations too, right? Being baptized outwardly, a physical act, cannot change you internally, right? Baptism doesn't save anyone. It doesn't. And not being baptized doesn't mean someone's not born again. It doesn't erase your salvation by not getting baptized. Baptism doesn't wash away your sins. I've had people who tell me they want to be baptized, and I say, I always ask, why? Because I want to know where they are. And they well, I want to be baptized to wash away my sins. Well, there's nothing that can wash away your sins except the blood of Christ. Right? And if that doesn't do it, the water in that little thing right there ain't going to help. The only way to be clean is to repent and believe the gospel. Because baptism isn't a magic spell or a mystical rite. It is an outward symbol of an inward reality. And it has benefit like church memberships and communion with the saints. But it has its limits because it's manifestly an external symbol like a wedding ring. Second principle I think we need to keep in mind is the gravitational pull of self-righteousness. We all need to keep an eye on this. We hear me, brothers and sisters, even those who have a great relationship with God and are well-meaning, we all have to keep an eye and keep a mind on the gravitational pull of self-righteousness. It is easy for us to get to a place in our life to feel like we've arrived to where we begin to look down on other people and think that somehow we're better than them. There's, I mean, there have been times in my life where I've prayed to God, you know, about a circumstance and wanting to change. And I've even thought to myself, I didn't pray it out loud because I caught myself, but I was wanting to say, Lord, I'm a pastor. Come on. I live for you. Look at what I do. And quickly I'm reminded, wait a minute, that doesn't mean anything. It's a gift that I can do this job, right? I am not righteous in any form or fashion by anything I do. I don't care how many kids we feed in this community. I don't care how many people think that I'm a nice guy, right? The reality is, is we have to keep an eye on our self-righteousness. The third thing is, is I think it's related, is we need to remind ourselves to walk 
humbly. Because as we've talked about before, we have nothing to boast about. There is not anything that we have to boast about. As Christians, that, 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 is, that, that should continually remind us, right? You have what you have, every bit of it by the grace of God. Right? Even the stuff that you earned by your hard work, that hard work is important, but by the way, God gave you all the talent and the initiative and all the stuff to make that a reality. You don't have anything to brag about or boast about. Right? And we especially don't have anything to brag about in our relationship with God. Right? I remember the, the, you, you remember the parable where Jesus talked about the, um, the, the Pharisee and the, the tax collector. They're sitting there praying to God. And the Pharisee is like, Lord, thank you for not making me like him. Because I do this, and I do that, and I do that, and I do that. And then the sinner, the tax collector said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Jesus asked the question, which one of them walked home justified? Right? We always are the tax collector, no matter, no matter how we outwardly by the grace of God, express our Christianity. We are still that tax collector. We have nothing ever to boast about. Our only boast is in Christ alone. And the fourth thing to remember is that the difficult truths of the gospel, like the the nature of mankind and his status before God, isn't given so that we we look upon ourselves with with self-disdain and self-loathing. It's not for us to just continually walk around going, I'm just a pathetic, worthless worm. The point of this, is, of these texts, is to get us all to the same place where we can look heavenward, where we take our eyes off of ourselves, where we can see then truly what God has done for us. It is these texts that remind us of our desperate need of a Savior, lest we begin to think that we're better than we are. It's these texts that help us to see not only our need for a Savior, but then also it helps us to see the overwhelming beauty of God's grace because He didn't have to do any of it. And it helps us to see the overwhelming joy of His love because it's out of His love for us, His love that He has for us in spite of us, the love with which He sent His Son into the world to die on our behalf, right? These texts should remind us continually of the glory of the gospel because the bad news as we see, as we will see very soon, is answered by God in His glorious goodness. And that is the message I hope that we carry out of here today for the rest of the week. Let me pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.